Section 99 of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland, and the Search for the Poles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 8, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland, and the Search for the Poles, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 99. Paying a Call in the Northwest Passage, 1906, by Roald Amundsen. To some, perhaps, it may occur that we could very well have done this survey under canvas, and that it was unnecessary to stop and retard our voyage on that account. This may be so, but it must not be forgotten that our position was not quite an ordinary one. Bearing in mind our running aground at Matty Island, we had quite decided not to risk a recurrence of that experience if we could possibly avoid it. We would rather sacrifice a few hours than jeopardize our vessel in these very hazardous waters, with a ragged stone bottom and shallow water under her keel, an unsafe compass and a small crew. We were, so to speak, standing on the threshold of our goal, attempted unsuccessfully by so many before us, and taking this into consideration, it was an easy task to restrain our impatience to get along as speedily as possible and out of our difficulties. At the first sign of daybreak we were at it again. We were compelled to keep southwards to avoid the shoals between the mainland and Douglas Island. The water was now getting deeper. Finding eventually that we had got far enough to the south, we turned off to the west, shaping our course towards the point where we expected to find an opening. It was an exciting time. Fortunately, the deep water continued. We found nowhere less than seven fathoms. We neared the mainland without trouble and found the passage all right. At 3 p.m. we passed Liston and Sutton Islands, and stood off into Dolphin and Union Strait. My relief at having thus got clear of the last difficult hole in the Northwest Passage was indescribable. I cannot deny that I had felt very nervous during the last few days. The thought that here, in these troublesome waters, we were running the risk of spoiling the whole of our so far successful enterprise was anything but pleasant, but it was always present to my mind. The whole responsibility for crew and vessel rested on me, and I could not get rid of the possibility of returning home with the task unperformed. The thought was anything but cheering. My hours of rest and sleep were principally spent during this time in brooding over such thoughts and they were not very conducive to sleep. All our precautions, and everybody's attention notwithstanding, any moment might have some surprise in store for us. I could not eat. At every mealtime I felt a devouring hunger, but I was unable to swallow my food. When finally we got out of our scrapes and I regained my usual calm, I had a most rapacious hunger to satisfy and I would rather not mention what I managed to dispose of. We could now discontinue the laborious watches of eighteen hours a day, 
and revert to the normal arrangement of six-hour watches. Barring a few small interruptions in the shape of fog and contrary wind, we made fair progress westwards. We did not sight Clerk Island at all, although the weather was clear, and it should have been well within the range of Bizrin. Its existence would, therefore, seem somewhat doubtful. We encountered small lots of ice now and then, which reminded us that we were in the Arctic regions and must be prepared for eventualities. On August 26, at 4 p.m., we sighted a high land to windward. The air was very misty, and as, according to our reckoning, we should be abreast of Cape Perry, I thought this was what we saw. During the early morning the air became clearer, and I knew then that this land was not Cape Perry on the mainland of America, but Nelson Head on Bering Island. The error was not quite insignificant, to be sure, but my misgivings on this head were appeased when told later by American whalers of the ludicrous mistakes they often made in these waters. There is probably a lot of iron in the mountains here, and the compass therefore becomes utterly distracted. Then there are strong currents, and the united influence of these factors may confuse the most conscientious navigator even more than it did when we mistook Nelson Head for Cape Perry. We were, of course, wholly unacquainted with the condition of things. When we had found our bearings, we continued our voyage at full speed, having a fair wind as well as the current right behind us. At 8 a.m., my watch was finished and I turned in. When I had been asleep some time, I became conscious of a rushing to and fro on deck. Clearly there was something the matter, and I felt a bit annoyed that they should go on like that for the matter of a bear or a seal. It must be something of that kind, surely. But then Lieutenant Hansen came rushing down into the cabin, and called out the weather memorable words, "'Vessel in sight, sir!' He bolted again immediately, and I was alone. The northwest passage had been accomplished, my dream from childhood. This very moment it was fulfilled. I had a peculiar sensation in my throat. I was somewhat overworked and tired, and I suppose it was weakness on my part, but I could feel tears coming to my eyes. Vessel in sight. The words were magical. My home and those dear to me there at once appeared to me, as if stretching out their hands. Vessel in sight. I dressed myself in no time. When ready, I stopped a moment before Nansen's portrait on my wall. It seemed as if the picture had come to life, as if he winked at me, nodding. Just what I thought, my boy. I nodded back, smiling and happy, and went on deck. It was a wonderfully fine day. The breeze had veered round somewhat to the east, and with the wind abaft and all sails set, we made excellent headway. It seemed as if the Gyoa understood that the hardest part of the struggle was over. She seemed so wonderfully light in her movements. Nelson Head was a long way off to the north. The flat-topped promontory looked grand in the morning sunshine, melting in the white snow, and throwing dark blue shadows into the parallel fissures of the mountainside. A heavy, bright swell rocked the vessel pleasantly, and the air was mild and soft. All this was observed in a moment. 
but it did not arrest our attention for long. The only objects between sky and sea that possessed any interest for us, then, were the two mastheads on the horizon. All hands had come, on deck, and all glasses were leveled at the approaching vessel. All faces were raised in smiles. Not much was said. One of the telescopes was lowered. I wonder. And it was raised again. Another one lowered the telescope and also remarked, I wonder. On the appearance of the unknown vessel, we hoisted our Norwegian flag. It glided slowly up under the gaff, every eye watching it. Many pleasant words were whispered to the flag. It seemed as if everybody wanted to caress it. It had become a bit worn and ragged, but it bore its wounds with honor. I wonder what he'll think when he sees it. He'll think it is a venerable old flag. Perhaps he's an American. I shouldn't be surprised if he were an Englishman. Yes, he will see by the flag what we are. Oh, yes, he will see we are boys from good old Norway. The vessels were approaching each other very rapidly. There, up goes the American flag, sang out the watchman. He had the long telescope which had been placed on deck. This proved to be correct, and we could now all see the stars and stripes under the vessel's gaff. They had seen and recognized our flag by now, that was certain. Dense steam was issuing from the vessel's side. Evidently they had a motor, the same as we had, and were advancing rapidly. It was time now to tidy ourselves a little in preparation for the first meeting. Four of us were to go on board the ship, the other three had to remain on the yoa and look after our vessel. Our best clothes were hurriedly got out. We dressed ourselves according to our individual taste. Some preferred Eskimo costumes, and others our Norwegian russet. One found that sealskin boots looked best for the occasion. Others preferred ordinary sea boots. We also cleared up on deck as well as we could. The American could certainly scan our deck in every detail, from his crow's nest, through his telescope, and we wanted to make as decent an impression as possible. We were now so near each other that the whole ship was visible from our deck. It was a small, two-masted schooner painted black. She had a powerful motor, and the foam at her bows was spurting high. She also carried sail. We got the boats clear, hove to and lowered the dory, the most seaworthy of them. It was certainly not much to look at, and the commander had no easy stern-sheets with a flag to sit on, but the boat was in the style of the vessel to which it belonged, and we were not on a pleasure trip. The American had stopped his engine and was waiting for us. With two men at the oars we were soon alongside of him. A line was thrown down to us, I caught it, and was again linked with civilization. It did not, however, make its appearance in any great glory. The Charles Hansen of San Francisco did not seem to be rigged out in a very luxurious manner. A ladder, by the by, was superfluous, as the ship was deep in the water. We took hold of the chain whales and crawled on board. Our first impression was most peculiar. Every available space on deck was occupied to such an extent that it was nearly impossible to get along. Eskimo women in red dresses and negroes in the most variegated costumes were mingling together, just as in a land of fable. 
an elderly man with a white beard, advanced towards me on the quarter-deck. He was newly shaven and nicely dressed, evidently the master of the ship. "'Are you Captain Amundsen?' was his first remark. I was quite surprised to hear that we were known so far away, and answered in the affirmative, owning that I was the man. "'Is this the first vessel you have met?' the old man asked. And when I admitted it was so, his countenance brightened up. We shook hands long and heartily. "'I am exceedingly pleased to be the first one to welcome you on getting through the Northwest Passage.' We were then most courteously invited down below to his cabin. There was not much room, though slightly more than on board of our own vessel, the Gioa. Captain James McKenna, the master of the Charles Hansen, was a man of medium height, corpulent and between fifty and sixty years of age. That he was an old Arctic trader was evident from his looks. The deep wrinkles and copper-colored face told plainly of cold and murky weather. His personality was jovial and agreeable. He asked if I wanted anything, in which case he was ready to help us to the best of his ability. The only thing we missed so far was news from home, but unfortunately he had none. That is to say, he had some old newspapers, but old, yes, to you, to us they are certainly absolutely fresh. He brought out a bundle, and by a wonderful coincidence my eye first alighted upon a headline which made me stare. War between Norway and Sweden. I swallowed the article in hot haste, but it gave only a moderate amount of information. Captain McKenna had left home long ago and could give no more particulars. We sought further information all over the ship, but no one knew any more about it. This uncertainty was more unsettling than our previous ignorance, but it could not be helped. We had to put aside our anxiety and wait. After a very good dinner, Lieutenant Hansen and I began culling as much information as possible regarding the navigation ahead of us. McKenna was the senior of the American whalers and knew the North American coast better than anyone else. What we prized particularly was the set of American charts for the continuation of our voyage. They were of a more recent date than ours, and contained many new items. With marginal notes and indications of courses by the old, experienced captain, they were a real treasure to us. They were somewhat worn and tattered, and we therefore packed them up most carefully. Then about the condition of the ice, did he think we could continue in a westerly direction without hindrance? He told us that when inward bound he had been hampered by ice near Herschel Island, but that at the present late period of the season we were hardly likely to meet any obstacles of consequence. We should in any case reach Herschel Island quite easily. He was certain of this, and as he was himself going to winter on that island, it might happen that we should meet again. Before going into winter quarters he intended making a trip as far as Banksland to look for whales. So far he had been unlucky and got none. His motor was very powerful, and he would probably catch us up on his return voyage to Herschel Island. In addition he gave us every possible information about the waters ahead of us. It was pleasant to hear that the bottom along the whole coast westwards was even, and that we could navigate safely by the lead. 
we had not been spoiled by safe navigation, so we looked upon the remainder of our voyage as a mere pleasure trip. The breeze kept up well, and as I considered I could not afford to lose more of it, we said good-bye to our amiable host after a visit of two hours' duration. When leaving, he made us a present of a bag of potatoes and another of onions. As it was a long time since we tasted such luxuries, we gratefully accepted the gifts. We were awaited on board with eager expectation. For the present we agreed to look with great distrust on the reported war between the two United Kingdoms. The potatoes and onions became the centre of joy, most of us being fond of these vegetables. We then dipped our flag, set all sail, and continued our voyage. McKenna proceeded eastwards to try his luck. End of section 99 This recording is in the public domain.